Late Night was a place where you paid a lot of money for one host who was a household name. But the payoff was that you got all of this star talent to come by for free because they were promoting a movie or an album. And meanwhile, the advertisers all wanted to be next to it because you had big stars like Taylor Swift. That doesn't move the needle anymore. That has been given over to social media and this, that, and the other thing. Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Friday, January 20th. Today, Dylan Byers joins me to discuss the buzz that CNN might be in the market for a late-night comedy host to star in prime time. Jon Stewart, Trevor Noah, Bill Maher? Or are these rumors nothing more than a bad joke? And later, Tina Wynn stops by to talk about why the soft skills of retail politics might be kryptonite for Ron DeSantis in a 2024 campaign, and how alternative media could be his superpower. We'll hear about all that and more in today's episode of The Powers That Be. Are you tired of sleeping hotter than hell? I sure am. I sleep hot. There's something crucial about sleep that eludes us when we're too warm, too uncomfortable, and too caught in the web of our own thoughts to drift off. And while curiosity fuels our days, science tells us that cool sleep recharges our nights. That's where Chili Pad by Sleep Me comes in. Meet the bed cooling system that elevates the quality of human life through cool sleep. The ChiliPad bed cooling system is your new bedtime solution. I love it. It lets you customize your sleeping environment to your optimal temperature, ensuring you fall asleep, stay asleep, and wake up refreshed. ChiliPad works with your existing mattress. It's a water-based mattress topper that continuously controls your bed temperature from 55 to 115 degrees, allowing your body to rest and recover. This isn't just about escaping the heat, it's also about optimizing your sleep for better health, more energy, and improved physical and cognitive performance, which I obviously need hosting a podcast. Chili pads are designed for one or two sleepers, so if your sleep partner likes to sleep at a different temperature, or you only need it for one side of the bed, that's okay too, and we know that's crucial. Plus, you can schedule automated temperature changes to trigger deep sleep. But when I'm at home, Chili Pad solves those problems. So trust me on this one. Visit sleep.me slash powers to get your chili pad and save up to $315 with code powers. This offer is available exclusively for powers that be listeners and only for a limited time. Order it today with free shipping and try it out for 30 days. You can return it for free if you don't like it with their sleep trial. Visit www.sleep.com. Dot M-E slash powers, because you're not just investing in better sleep, you're creating a better life. Happy Friday, everybody. Welcome to the powers that be. I'm joined today by Dylan Byers. How you doing, Dylan? I'm doing great, Peter. Dylan, I want to talk to you about a story that's been percolating about CNN. And I believe uh, Matt Bellany, our colleagues, sort of first mentioned this in one of his newsletters, uh, and then Max Tanney over at Semaphore kind of fleshed this out in his reporting. Basically, that Chris Licht at CNN, as he tries to figure out what to do in prime time, is knocking around the idea of some kind of entertainment or comedy show, perhaps hosted by Jon Stewart, perhaps by Bill Maher, perhaps by Trevor Noah. What do you make of all this? Should CNN 
go for like a kind of comedy style show, sort of like late night weekend-ish, I think, like Fox News show where Greg Gutfeld, you know, cracks, you know, the best jokes in comedy, obviously. Should CNN pursue this this strategy as well? But more importantly, because we have the scoop on this stuff, how real is this gossip or is it just gossip? So back in September, when right around the time when I learned that Chris Licht was basically trying to make Jake Tapper his primetime host and that he was going to give him this five-week trial run to see if he could convince him to do it. A high-level source at CNN sort of cautioned and said, you know, look, if this doesn't work out, Chris has all of these other plans up his sleeve. And it's like, okay, well, to the best of my knowledge and what I can perceive here is that he's got one plan, which is to try and make Jake Tapper the the 9 p.m. host and, and the face of the network. Uh, so what other plans do you have kicking around? And the one that came up was bringing over someone from the world of late night television who was described to me as a John Stewart type or a Stephen Colbert type. Now, this was September's is four or five months ago. Jake Tapper does his trial run. It doesn't work. It actually fails pretty miserably. And then primetime goes back to being more or less vacant And then in December, Chris Licht gives an interview to the New York Times in which he again floats this idea of a Jon Stewart or a Stephen Colbert type. He even uses those names as the example of people he would like to bring over. Almost a month later, they come up to the speed up to this week, Max Tanney at Semaphore reports that Chris Licht and other executives are talking about bringing a late night host over to CNN. I went back to the best sources I have at the network, and and I tried to suss out whether or not this was just the same old thing or whether or not there had been real developments on this front. And what I've found is that there haven't really been. The desire is still there to bring someone over from late night. Hmm. And there are, you know, talent agents who are sort of throwing names Chris Lick's way as, as potential ideas for people who might be able to do this. But there's no there's it's not as though there's an imminent announcement or or that any real progress has been made. The bigger question, which is which you rightly brought up, is would this even be a good idea? And who would it be a good idea for? And overwhelmingly, as I think about it, the answer is no and for no one. Uh s- the entire premise of Chris Lick's CNN is we are getting away from polarizing content, partisan content, uh, heavily opinionated content. We are trying to create a network that allows for greater nuance and and can be a broader tent to bring in more people, right? That can sort of bridge the partisan divide that defines our time. I love Jon Stewart. I love Stephen Colbert. I think that uh, late night comedy in the sort of Stewart Daily Show era and after has a really wonderful way of doing an, an even better job of informing people than traditional news networks often do. All of that said, it is if, if you were a Republican, if you were sitting over not not certainly over in in Trump universe, but even if you're sitting over in sort of Mitch McConnell, Kevin McCarthy universe, late night is a incredibly polarizing and incredibly partisan mm-hmm. medium. And there is no world in which you can achieve the objectives that that Chris Licht has set out for himself at CNN by hiring the guys who have made who have basically built their careers off of skewering Republicans over and over again every night on television. So one, it doesn't really make sense for that reason. Two, it would be extremely expensive for a network that and a company at Warner Brothers Discovery that is trying to cut costs. 
Maybe you could justify the cost if you believed it would be such a rating success, but that brings us to number three, which is it probably wouldn't be, because like cable news, the world of late-night television is also suffering through the inexorable decline of linear media, has also sort of been upended by the rise of digital and social media. Late night was a place where you, you paid a lot of money for one host who was a household name, but the payoff was that you got all of this star talent to come by for free because they were promoting a movie or an album or a cookbook, and you didn't have to pay them. And meanwhile, the advertisers all, all wanted to be next to it because you had big stars like Taylor Swift or Kim Kardashian or whoever. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That doesn't move the needle anymore at all. No star moves the needle anymore because late night is no longer the promotional vehicle that it was. That is That has been given over to social media and and this, that, and the other thing. So it's not really a business that would necessarily reverse CNN's fortunes. And then finally, the last issue is who who among the available pool of talent in late night that could conceivably make a difference for the network? Who would actually want to do that when we live at a time when you can make so much, you know, you can get your exclusive Netflix deal. Netflix will shoot your stand-up show. Trevor Noah left The Daily Show because he believed he could make more. In fact, he knew from from experience that he could make significantly more money touring and wouldn't have to live through the daily grind of producing a show that fewer and fewer people were watching every night. So none of this makes sense to me. And and moreover, it's not it's not even clear that this is something that's ever really going to happen. I think the fact that Chris Lick continues to talk about this suggests that he doesn't still, nine months, ten months into the job, still doesn't have an actual plan for primetime, which, which is perhaps the bigger, the bigger story and the bigger problem here. But how serious, like in your conversations with like talent agents, is this stuff? Is it all just spin? Like, this is this coming from nowhere? Is Chris actually going to... UTA and CAA and saying like, yo, throw me some names or like, are these, is, is this stuff just coming from agents looking for a deal? Like who's talking? This, Chris Licht wants, this is, this is Chris Licht talking about this idea. So with conversations in his inner circle, he keeps floating this idea that, God, I don't know, wouldn't it be great to bring someone, you know, over from late night, right? I think Chris Licht is somebody who fancies himself as someone who is sort of can reinvent formats and there is some credibility to that belief he made morning tell you know he made morning television i would say a little more sophisticated and a little more interesting for a certain kind of audience for a certain sort of well-educated coastal politically interested audience he did it twice actually the the colbert late night run was was fantastic. And again, if you sort of that like that sort of like smarter, um, more sophisticated thing, it, it doesn't necessarily have always have broad appeal, right? Like Morning Joe, like never became yeah, the new yeah, Today yeah. Show and CBS this morning never really certainly never competed with the Today Show or Good Morning America. But it was at least interesting for a certain audience. He probably believes that at this time when the, the linear television model is in decline, that there's room to experiment and maybe he could create something that was a sort of late night, you know, news entertainer type broadcast that actually could be funny and compelling and not be partisan at the same time. I believe that's what he said to the New York Times. So this is all coming from him. It's just that there's no evidence that it's anything more than a sort of abstract dream hypothetical. 
uh, that yes, t- talent agents have been saying, here's some people, you know, we'll pitch you these people, but there's no evidence that any of the names that he's mentioned actually have any interest in doing it, yeah. that there have been any conversations with those people, that those people are even available, right? I mean, Stephen Colbert has his late night gig. John Stewart is under contract with Apple. Right. So I don't doubt that this is something Chris Licht wants and believes he could make successful. I just don't see any evidence of it necessarily coming to fruition because there's so much about it that doesn't make sense. And oh, by the way, you can put Jake Tapper in prime time for five weeks and then say, we're going to do something else. But if you go out and you hire an expensive talent like a Bill Maher uh, or a Trevor Noah and bring them to the network, that is not a decision that is so easily reversible. Is there a world where like there's a Larry King or Charlie Rose style without the obvious HR downsides um, interview show? (laughs) You know, I guess like they tried to do this with Piers Morgan back in the day, but like a serious like hour long format where you bring in big newsmakers. Like I'm just thinking this is top of mind because like Anderson Cooper did this interview with Rick Rubin on 60 Minutes last Sunday. And I I, all clips from it just like went super viral because. Rick Rubin is a brilliant weirdo <laughs> and they like meditated before the interview, whatever, <laughs> you know, it, or is that just sort of like a PBS style kind of programming that just wouldn't fly? No, this is, I mean, look, this what you're talking about. That sort of interview format is the dream. And when Larry King did it, it was a big success. And, you know, Charlie Rose was his own sort of institution, I think. And people really aspire to that. I think if you look at some of the biggest names in media, when, when they finally, you know, they're, they're at the height of their game and someone says, here, carte blanche to do, you know, Netflix says carte blanche to do whatever you want. They often do something that is in the vein of a Charlie Rose or a Larry King. It is like if you look at um, David Letterman, he's got and my next guest, which is which is built entirely around that mm-hmm. model of him just spending an hour talking to someone. Mm-hmm. Remember when, back in the day when Megyn Kelly was the biggest star in media. And, and NBC and CNN were fighting to hire her and she was on the cover of Vanity Fair and, and, and the sky was the limit. She always said she wanted like an Oprah or Charlie Rose style gig. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So that is sort of the dream. Does it work? I don't It's really hard. It's really hard in this age of social media uh, when everyone sort of has their own distribution platforms and, and you know, you, you can go basically direct to consume. If you are the talent, you can go direct to consumer and you don't need a show. And, and of course, fewer and fewer people are watching TV, as we discuss every week on the podcast. I don't know if that still exists, right? I love The Letterman Show. I think it's really, I really enjoy watching it. But I don't think it's sort of it captured the zeitgeist in the way anyone was necessarily perhaps hoping it would. So I think a lot of people will continue to try at that medium. But I don't know if anyone will become, will sort of achieve the status that that previous people have back back in television's golden age. Thank you for reminding me that NBC paid Megyn Kelly $69 million to create a show <laughs> that absolutely nobody watched and then agreed to part ways. I mean, just like the calamitous, stupid, like large scale business decisions that are made in this business just like blow me away. <laughs> I know that was like 2017, 2018, but holy shit, I forgot about that. Can I, by the way, say on that point, that th- there's a theme here, right? Which is that oftentimes there are no second acts for big media personalities, right? Megan Kelly wanted to go on and do something else. And she really never worked outside of the Fox News thing. 
Mm-hmm. David Letterman was a great late night host. And I love, again, I love this new show, but it's not exactly like it's this, this big phenomenon. Same with John Stewart. John Stewart has tried to refashion himself in all these ways, which are smart and sophisticated. And maybe you like it and maybe it's your flavor, but he will be remembered as the host of the daily show. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure that you can pluck a Stephen Colbert or a Trevor Noah and bring them to CNN and turn and turn that into something that's really compelling. Yeah, there's a moment where like that's that's the point moment. It's like talent meets a moment and those things come together. Leno and Letterman in the 90s, Tucker Carlson and Fox News <laughs> a couple years ago. It's just like if you take someone out of their temporal bubble and move them elsewhere, tough and also the flip side is and we saw this with rachel maddow you do that stuff for a long time you make a lot of money you want to get off the hamster wheel you don't necessarily want to like get back on it unless you're just like a total sociopath (laughs) Um, (laughs) and you know it's like i want to go make podcasts and do other things that you know spark my creative mind and not necessarily do like a nightly show why would i go do it somewhere else but Um, Matt, I wasn't everybody. So who knows what will happen? Hey, thanks for pulling back the curtain on all this stuff. Um, obviously there's a lot of, you know, gossip around this flying around the internet. I'm glad you have sources, Dylan. Thanks for coming on. Thank you, Peter. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com tech. Welcome back to The Powers That Be. I'm Ben Landy, talking to Tina Wynn. Hey, Tina. What's up, Ben? Tina, we're at a funny point in the campaign cycle where Donald Trump has announced that he was running for president back in November, which I, I almost have totally forgotten about. I had to double check to uh, make sure that I hadn't just imagined that because he's had virtually zero impact on the national conversation since then. But everybody in politics in the, in the GOP has been waiting to see which Republicans are going to raise their hand and step into the ring with Trump. Because nobody really wants to be the first one to, like, wave the red flag that gets the bull going. But there's this equally hilarious subplot featuring Ron DeSantis, who is obviously gearing up to challenge Trump, where most of the big money in the GOP is totally behind this guy. They want DeSantis to run. They're tired of Trump. And yet, whenever you ask any of these guys anonymously what they think about DeSantis, which you have done, which Tara and Teddy have done, they all say the same thing, which is that... They want to love this guy, but he's just so totally lacking in charisma or any kind of human connection or emotional intelligence. And it's really put a drag on his ability to fundraise. And it's also raised fears about his ability to connect with voters when he actually gets out there. You wrote the other day that DeSantis does not necessarily need a traditional campaign infrastructure. He doesn't necessarily need to get into retail politics the same way that more traditional candidates have done. But talk to me about how he would go about doing that, crafting his own reality and narrative through alternative media. When I say that retail politics doesn't particularly matter anymore, I'm talking about the way that, you know, campaigns were run 
in 2016, which is eight years ago. It's the period of time between the telegraph and talk radio happening. (laughs) And uh, just like so much has changed, the way that information and validators and people who can successfully endorse someone works has completely changed. And so too have like the medium through which voters, especially primary state voters, are going to make their choices. You have more people going on Tucker Carlson to make their case to the American public than you do someone going to the Des Moines Register in Iowa. And uh, even with Tucker Carlson, he's not exactly the most influential guy in the game. Sure, he's got the numbers. Sure, he's got the contracts. But I would argue that primary voters tend to skew more towards their favorite influencers online or their favorite smaller right-wing publications than they would the monolith that is Fox News or their local, you know, alderman or local representative slash business owner. Like those guys, if we go back to the local power brokers, those guys kind of are the quote unquote establishment that DeSantis wants to get around. And sure, he's really bad at talking to other politicians. Um, There is this amazing anecdote in a Politico article about DeSantis's etiquette charm school makeover. And they were like, a Republican governor was once trying to get in touch with DeSantis and someone asked for his contact and the guy had to go and Google it to get like a normal press contact or whatever. Yeah, I read this um, this column from from Jonathan Martin, too, which is very funny. I mean, it opens with a scene sort of describing DeSantis doing like very basic human things like going up to the table to talk to donors, looking them in the eye like a human being, shaking their hands. And this is being treated by these donors as like a major step in the development of DeSantis, that he's had to like engineer this entire personality makeover Mm -hmm. in order to communicate with them like a like a person. It's hard to imagine that that doesn't hurt him in the long run, even if he's able to tap these other developing digital strategies where he's sort of going DTC, where he's connecting with influencers online rather than through traditional media, through traditional retail politicking. Aren't there limits to like what he can do if he himself is sort of emotionally stunted in that way? This is going a little bit into the weird realm of psychology, but uh, there are other ways to indicate that you are a human being. And it's going to be interesting to see how the DeSantis group tries to express that. Like, maybe it's not going to be talking to rich people blatantly. Maybe it's going to be like going to very small, random online groups to a degree that Trump himself has not been able to replicate. He sort of views his media operation as like, I'm going to sit here on Truth Social and let everyone come to me. Yeah, I mean, I I don't want to understate the power of Truth Social or of talking to like Steven Crowder on his show or Ben Shapiro. But Tina, do you agree with the thesis that is sort of put forward in this Politico piece and, and that we've been talking about a little bit here today, that the retail politics is not important anymore? I mean, does does it just not matter in a world where campaigns are are essentially national all the time, that they're happening online? Do those individual connections with local and state power brokers not move the needle in the way they used to? I think they won't move the needle the way they used to. The question of what it's going to look like now is going to be tested in 24. I think it would be a mistake to go into the first couple of primary states thinking that you could replicate the 2016 playbook because that's what worked in the past. 2020, obviously, we couldn't test out anything new because Trump was running for re-election. 
but individual voters still will look to someone to serve as a validator, to serve as someone who influences them. Is that person going to be online or is that person going to be the guy they see at the diner who's a local business owner? I can guarantee you that the power of local politicians, local community leaders is going to be diminished. Exactly how diminished? I don't know. But if you look at the last cycle, the last um, primary cycle, you saw all of these career politicians and pillars of the community get knocked out of the race by upstart MAGA people. Yeah, one of the facets of retail politics that seems like a guy like DeSantis can't avoid is holding rallies. Trump really built the expectation for that particular kind of campaign event. He obviously has a lot of charisma. Those events are long, they're freewheeling, they're, they're entertaining. That's not where DeSantis excels. It could be enough that he's not Trump, that he's a little bit more sane, he's, he comes off as more competent. It could also be enough if he were against a Democrat in a general, say Joe Biden, that he's nearly 40 years younger. I don't want to harp on his lack of charisma, but I do think it is sort of the underappreciated dynamic of this race. There is a, a coalescing conventional wisdom that Donald Trump maybe does not have what it takes to be the 2024 nominee, that there are a lot of major power brokers and people in the GOP who do not want him to lead the party once again. But it's under discussed that this is sort of a fundamental weakness of DeSantis, that he is sort of this Scott Walker character who maybe will not have the same impact or confidence when he actually has to get out on a stage and talk to 1,000, 2,000, 10,000 people at a time. And so it'll be interesting, like you said, to see whether he can supplement that part of his ostensible campaign with the sort of alternate media strategy that you've been discussing. Yeah. I mean, rallies are still pretty important, especially since Trump said that, Sandra, you make a really good point there. He has been known for really viral campaign ads. That's an avenue he could take. They would have to hire a really good digital firm for that. I don't know if other, whether that's actually in their playbook or not. But he has also um, been quietly reaching out to all of these online influencer radio hosts type media figures who have started really going to bat for him. You can watch this play out online pretty much all the time if you um, have the specific Twitter feed curated. So we're going to see exactly how much that long-term investment pays off as well. Yeah, I think that's right. It really speaks to the fact that, as you note, less of the 2024 campaign is going to be fought in like in, in VFW lodges than it will be courting these kind of online influencers whose message can spread a lot wider, a lot faster than these local events can. Bettina, thanks for stopping by and uh, chatting about it with us. Of course, anytime. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear on this podcast, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. You can visit us at puck.news and on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Peter Hamby. See you next week. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, and Chris Corcoran, chief content officer and founding partner of Cadence 13. 